Successes at all levels, from personal through national, have come with denser, tighter connections, and good governance have worked hand-in-hand. Japan and other nations need to develop a stronger disaster culture and stronger disaster institutions, that is, simultaneous top-down and bottom-up initiatives. Residents need to connect to one another and their decision-makers in a bottom-up, organic way that builds cohesive and inclusive networks of social ties. This is from the book Black Wave, How Networks and Governance Shaped Japan's 311 Disasters by Dr. Daniel Aldrich. I spoke with Dr. Aldrich, who is a professor and director of the Security and Resilience Program at Northeastern University. He researches post-disaster recovery, countering violent extremism, the siting of controversial facilities, and the interaction between civil society and the state. We spoke about how social capital can bring people together to demonstrate greater resilience in the face of COVID-19, and how communities can establish stronger social ties while maintaining physical distance and stay-at-home measures. We also discussed the use of the term physical distancing versus social distancing. Now, let's ride the wave. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. Thank you very much, Daniel, for joining the interview and the podcast. What do you currently see as evidence of social capital bringing people together, both here in the United States and overseas, demonstrate greater resilience in the face of COVID-19? Yeah, so I've seen a lot of evidence, even where I live here in Boston, that there are these emergent bottom-up groups forming, not from pre-existing societies or clubs or churches or mosques or synagogues, but just individuals who know their neighbors and know that they need help. And the easiest thing I've seen so far has been pretty cool. Actually, it's a note. It's kind of a, if you ever had a Mad Lib as a kid, it says, hello, my name is, mm-hmm. and fill in Daniel or whatever. And I live at this address, fill in your address, and my phone number and my email address are the following. If you need any help, here's what I can provide. I can provide toilet paper. I can provide a lift to the store. Mm-hmm. I can provide a grocery delivery. If you need medical advice, I've got a brother who's a doctor. If you need advice on how to get your power turned back on, here's my friend. So it's a very straightforward thing. You don't need anything fancy. It works for the elderly and for the young. It works for people with technology, without technology. That's a great advice, great project to use, right? There's nothing fancy about it. It doesn't depend on any government situation or having Wi-Fi. It just means a neighbor printed out a bunch of these and literally went door to door and stuck them around the community. So that was a great sign that I saw, that without any prompting, without any need for organization, people recognize neighbors need help and began delivering it. So that's one of the areas, you know, we think social ties deliver a number of benefits during a crisis. One of the most obvious, of course, is resources. That is to say, if I don't have toilet paper and you do, then if you're nearby enough, Andrew, I could reach out and get the toilet paper from you. Or alternatively, it might be advice on what to do information stuff. So there are a variety of different ways that these ties can be used. One of the most important ones would be also emotional support. So just knowing I've got a neighbor thinking, okay, I didn't know him before. His name is Mr. Whatever, so-and-so. And now I've got that connection. So that combination of information, resources, and emotional support, that's the kind of aid that we see now springing up even during the physical distancing of COVID-19. Interesting. In your book, Black Wave, you cite that government expectations, public participation is low, and that Japanese citizens have little trust 
in their government, in some ways very similar to what we see in some parts of the United States. Do you see that on exhibit in the response to COVID-19? How is this manifested in the U.S. response, both, I think, positive and negative? Yeah, I think we are seeing several aspects of, I would call it, polarized or partisan information reception. So, for example, right now we know that the more dense communities, for example, New York or Seattle, are simply having more cases than the more rural areas of North America, whether it's in Colorado or Utah. So to begin with, there's a visibility issue. People aren't seeing this as a problem. I know that my friends in Central Park, there's literally a tent being erected there that will be the new emergency response tent, or there's a new ship parked in New York Harbor that will host 10,000 hospital beds for people who need to be pushed out of normal hospitals. It's a very visible sign something's wrong and something should be changed. If you're living right now in Whitefish, Montana, or you're living in parts of Colorado, maybe you're seeing nothing out of the ordinary. People might even still be getting together. If you're in Florida, for example, you saw spring breakers coming down on the beaches just until last week, actually. Many beaches were open. So that unfortunately exacerbates the existing polarization where Democratic and Republican listeners might be seeing this threat in very different ways. We know already from polling that Democrats, people who vote blue, tend to see this more seriously than those who vote red and vote Republican. And that could be for a variety of reasons. Again, the rural-urban split. It also could be because the information sources, again, we talked before about social ties, the vertical ties we have to news stations, to Fox News, CNNBC, NPR, whatever our normal sources, different news broadcasts slanted this image differently. For some, it was, this is a hoax. This is an attempt to bring down the president. This is an attempt to embarrass someone. For others, no, though, this is an international incident. It's beginning abroad. It's coming here. So those differences in how information was perceived and then transmitted also could change very strongly. Do I trust? Now the government's telling me, don't leave my house. My government's telling me in California, for example, no more gun sales right now. So those policies and how they're received, I think, are being seen quite differently. Again, whether living in Whitefish, Montana, or living in Brighton, Massachusetts. Are there parts of the United States or parts of the world where you've noticed greater resilience and the spread and impact of COVID-19? And if so, what aspects of those social networks and governance do you see contribute to that? I begin by saying there are definitely areas in the world where the government response has been a very challenging one for the long term. And one of the most obvious examples came in China, when the doctors and nurses who first raised the alarm that something was wrong, many of them were silenced, either literally by being taken to police presence for several weeks, or in some cases they haven't been seen from the point, actually, they're probably in a political education camp someplace else. And then when it was clear that there was a problem going on, the government actually went ahead and actually welded people into their apartment complexes. They literally couldn't leave. That's a level of coercion only possible in an authoritarian state, not possible in North America, even as the police in Rhode Island go door to door looking for New Yorkers furtively here on vacation or whatever. You know, that level of surveillance and coercion is not possible in a democratic state. So that's one response. We've also seen in Italy a range of responses from, I'd say, a relatively fumbling response initially and a very high mortality rate. When in contrast, some of the smaller communities have literally tested every single person there. There's at least two things I've read so far. The same town of around 3,000 individuals, every single person in the town got tested. Those who tested positive were put aside for a quarantine. Those who didn't test positive were allowed to keep rolling free. That's a very intensive level of testing. Certainly America, in terms of per capita testing, has nowhere near that level of testing. That was a great response. And we're also seeing right now in North America, state by state, even county by county, different levels. I saw, I mentioned already Florida, in parts of the beach country, the spring break country, some counties have banned use of the beach. 
Others have banned parking on the beach. So you can imagine, I mean, literally side by side, I've seen images where the beach is full because the only thing you're stopping is parking on the beach and the beach is empty because there are police officers patrolling in the back. I also know that some communities, religious communities in North America, have had a harder time as well. You mentioned before about information in terms of the response and listening closely. Unfortunately, several communities in Lakewood, for example, in New York, have had some very, very high penetration rates of COVID-19. And unfortunately, some of the weddings and so forth, ceremonies have continued. So really, this is definitely a location-by-location, state-by-state kind of response. And we will see in the long term how differently, let's say, Colorado plays out versus New York. Based on your recent research paper titled Social Capital's Role in Humanitarian Crises, how can communities help to establish stronger social ties when we maintain physical distance and stay-in-home measures? I mean, so many societies, ours is not different in many ways, that have that sense of being of social contact in, in many different facets. Yeah, so several things to think about in terms of what we can do with physical distancing at the same time of trying to build social ties. One is to recognize, unfortunately, the term social distancing was the term that was used for quite some time. And that was just recently stopped, by the way, if you're following the news. The WHO has stopped using that term, for example. Right now, the Victorian government of Australia, the Red Cross, all those organizations have stopped using the term because it just sounds like our job is to literally cut ties. Physical distancing absolutely is what we should be doing. Six feet, 10 feet apart at the most, you should be as far apart from people as you can get. But part of this is to begin emphasizing from the bottom up, that kind of bottom up response. Again, it's not that we can't help our neighbors. It's that we can't shake their hands, give them kisses and hug them. That doesn't mean we can't go out shopping for them if they can't go out. It doesn't mean we can't offer to watch someone kids at the park if there's a park nearby that's not too crowded. It doesn't mean we can't go on walks 10 feet apart from other people. There are plenty of things that we can do to maintain social ties. Even, for example, if your church, synagogue, or mosque meets online. And I've seen a number of worship services now where people are now getting together on Zoom. I've seen even clubs. My daughter's ballet club is still meeting online. Honestly, it looks a little uncomfortable, but they have a camera and there's a teacher in one corner and you're all trying to do your moves. You know, those are ways we can think through these connections aren't just sort of a side effect that, oh, we need to have connections. Really, and again, we have a lot of research on this. During the biggest shots that we can think about, these social ties have been what brought us out of it. The ways that we survive and thrive in a shock don't come from government insurance or from having wealth or from having a big or a small home. It comes from being in a network of individuals who make me feel part of something bigger than myself, can give me information and resources, and help me keep going. The best things that we can do right now are to keep up or maintain those social ties, whether, again, it's through a note on a door, whether it's through yelling out through a window. I've seen some really cute things on internet where people are using signs, right, in the window. You know, what's your cat's name? Going back and forth, using drones to carry messages back and forth, all kinds of stuff that doesn't require us being side by side. And again, even a radio program nowadays, and I know this is kind of old-fashioned for many of us, but certainly in countries where Wi-Fi is harder to come by, radio programming is one way of keeping people connected. So these are all ways, high tech and low, that can make sure that even during a process like this, when we need physical distancing, we still have social connectedness. Just to wrap things up, where do you see this in, let's say, a month, two months, if we're still in the situation where we are isolated at home, we have to keep physical distance, we don't have the ability to, to congregate? Do you see this sort of virtualization of our social ties? into those clusters that we normally have on a physical basis, you know, work, maybe social clubs, maybe religious affiliations and so forth? I think that's for sure true. And I've noticed, for example, Nextdoor, which is sort of a Facebook social group 
that is geographically constrained, that has taken off. A number of people, both in Boston, where I live, and my friends across the country, are using Nextdoor to communicate with emergency providers, with churches, mosques, and synagogues, with neighbors, with people nearby. So that is certainly one way to do this, to virtualize our ties, to make use of technology. But again, think about someone who's in their 80s and 90s who doesn't really feel comfortable with cell phones or Zoom or whatever we're using. I think for them, we still have to think through, how do we make sure someone in their 80s or 90s feels connected? It might be a phone call. It might be a note. It might be a son outside the window and the parents inside the, the house and they're just talking through the window. We can't imagine that technology will be the solution to all these problems. It might be one medium that we use to enhance those ties for, let's say, the ages five to 50 crowd. But once you hit my parents' age or above my parents' age, we really have to think through, you know, how do we connect even without high-tech solutions like a Zoom or a Nextdoor? What can we do with notes, with knocks, with delivery of groceries to make sure people, especially, and I think it'll be more than two months. Right now, we're entering early April. I think a lot of estimates say that we need to be in this sort of lockdown for quite a long time, maybe August, if that long, if not longer. So we're talking, you know, a long time to begin changing our habits. So again, maybe my old day was I used to get up and I would go to the barista and Starbucks nearby and say hello and stop for a coffee. Then I get on the bus and say hello to my neighbors and I go to work and say hi. So we have to think about, okay, so how do we make sure that we still feel connected at every step of my day to my neighbors nearby, to food delivery services, to my work colleagues, to my Roomba or whatever it is, Zumba colleagues doing aerobics. How do we make sure that we have those ties, whether through a high-tech solution like Nextdoor or a low-tech one like uh, Note? I want to thank you very much for your time, Daniel, and your commentary on social networks. And I will be using the term physical distancing going forward, although I have seen that there have been some of our colleagues. These are folks who are also in the disaster recovery or in the emergency management field of research who said, well, social distancing is what's used commonly, so it's going to be too much of cognitive dissidence. But I think I will use physical distancing and include in parentheses, formerly known as social distancing. Almost like, like Prince, right. Artist formerly known as Prince. Exactly. Everybody knows him as Prince. We know it's Prince and sort of that sort of thing. So that will help to promote it. So thanks once again. A pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Andrew. I appreciate it. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagementalloneword.com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, President of Pinnacle Performance Management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.